question that somebody gave to me way back is, if you, um, if, why in John 6, 53 to 58, why did Jesus make such literal sounding statements about communion? Why do so many believe in the real presence? <clears throat> Referring there, I assume, to um, doctrine, especially in the Catholic Church, which is kind of a cornerstone of the theology of the Catholic Church, that um, <clears throat> in our act of communion in the Eucharist, that there is not simply a symbol of Christ and a remembrance of Christ, but that the actual presence of Christ is required and comes, and, um, and it's a whole, nif whole different layer of meaning beyond what we as Protestants have understood Jesus to say. And so the question is, why do people believe this? And why did Jesus make such a um, graphic, or it says here, such literal sounding statements about communion as to say, you have to drink my blood, you have to eat my flesh. So uh, thank you, Josh, for eating that. I want to spend uh, some moments on it, and then we are going to have communion, and we're going to invite you to come here to the front, and servers will serve you communion here <clears throat> at the front of the church. This is a Sunday that has been designated for many, many, many years. I remember it when I was a kid, and that was a long time ago, um, as Worldwide Communion Sunday, when churches of all different groups and, and denominations are together celebrating this marvelous and mysterious reenactment of the death and the substitution of Jesus. So uh, I want to I work my way through here and make a couple points. First of all, just an understanding of what we are dealing with in this passage. A metaphor or an analogy or whatever is a figure of speech. A figure is a figure. A figure is not real in itself, but it is a representation of something else. So a figure is something that is not itself technically true or real or accurate, but it uses something that is real or true or accurate to communicate a point. So you might say, oh, when I, when I heard your voice, that was just music to my ears. Or when I heard that news, that was music to my ears. Now, we all understand you didn't really hear notes. And you didn't hear a French horn or a piano. You didn't actually hear music. Nobody was singing. There was no vibrato. But yet you used the phrase music, which is exactly what that is. But everybody understands what that means. Music is something pleasant. Music is something inspirational. Music is something that's joyous and meaningful, and it fills us with a sense of gladness and goodness. And so when we say, oh, when I heard that, that was just music to my ears, we don't literally mean it was music to my ears. We mean that it gave me the same sensation as I get when I hear music or when I sing music or when I feel music. I, it filled me with just a pleasant, wonderful sense of, of goodness like music fills me with when I, when I hear or when I participate in music. That's what we mean, but that's not what we say. 
we all understand that technically it's not true. Um, and yet we, we use that commonly all the time, all of us, we use figures of speech. We use metaphors to illustrate because it's hard for us to express how we feel. But when we say, oh, I feel like music, it was just like music tickling my ears. We all know how that, how that feels. So to come to this passage where he talks about the, the body and the blood and the eating and the drinking and so forth. Uh, we're dealing with something that is spiritual. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the substitution of one soul on behalf of another where, where, when the scripture says that's impossible as a human. We cannot substitute for one another. But somehow God came and made it possible by becoming one of us. It's a very difficult, very diffuse concept. It's something that um, <clears throat> seems very vague and difficult to express, but it's made understandable to us by using something that we understand fully and experience each and every one of us, and there is nothing, I suppose, more universal and more uh, ubiquitous than food. And the act of physical act of eating it and drinking it and consuming it, this is just, you know, consumes a vast quantity of our life, not only eating and drinking, but the preparation for eating and drinking, making sure we have something to eat and drink, or going somewhere where somebody does, and getting in line and paying some money and saying, I'm here, uh, I'm here to, to eat and to drink. All of us, all of our life, have this metaphor or this analogy deeply embedded within us, and we understand it. And so, uh, there are. This is the reason that Jesus, I suppose, chose this as a type of expression of what he was doing and how we respond to it. Uh, elsewhere in the scripture, there are other places where it uses the 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 action of eating and drinking to express something spiritual. Uh, I think of Psalm 63, it says, lift up your hands in the, names, in the name of the Lord and, and praise the Lord and your soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Well, we all know what it feels like to be satisfied with the richest of foods. Now, our variation or our um, definition of what foods are rich and what foods are not is probably going to differ from each other. And some of us will say, you like that? Ah, that's disgusting. And we'll say, the other guy will say, oh, it's rich. It's great. I love it. And it satisfies me. Um, my personal pet peeve is liver and onions. Can't stand them. <laughs> but if you do, I'll just keep praying for you and, and, and believing somehow that God can redeem you. We all respond to, we all love, we all appreciate, we all enjoy, we all need food. And so we get, we get excited and we get, we get involved and, and so forth with food. I want to just make a couple of uh, several points about the reality of the real item, food, 
that I believe actually tie into the analogy and why it's such an effective metaphor or spirit of speech, figure of speech, to use food and drink as an expression of our response to God, of his provision and our response. First of all, this is kind of what I was pointing out with these kids up here in the front. I had a, a little pack of gummies, but they couldn't eat them. They could see them. They, we couldn't really get to them. The package wasn't open, and they couldn't taste them. And I was trying to simply say, Jesus was God's act of opening the gummies. He, he opened up and made available to us so that we could actually experience on a much more personal and understandable and, and real level um, what God is like. And so Jesus is using this, this understanding of food uh, to make a point. We all perhaps enjoyed looking at food. If you see food on a grocery store shelf, might, it might look pretty cool. Or if you see, um, um, you know, if you, if you see a picture of something that looks kind of attractive, or if you're, you open your freezer door and you see all these, you know, steaks or, or cakes of or, uh, frozen lima beans or whatever it is, and you say, oh, it all looks good. This winter, I surely will enjoy it. We, we enjoy and looking at food and perceiving food, but it doesn't help us a bit. We can look at food all day long. We can talk about it. We can fantasize about it. And it still doesn't do a single solitary bit of good for us unless we eat it. And so perhaps that's the starting point with Jesus using this metaphor of food. Here's a place in the New Testament where Paul says, or where the writer says, it doesn't do any good just to know something. You have to bring it internal. Um, Here's someone that looked at the food on the shelf, but they didn't consume it. And look what he says. It was of no value to them. They heard it, but they didn't eat it. They didn't exercise faith. Now, again, this is mixing the spiritual reality with the physical illustration of it. But he's simply, he's simply addressing this issue of internalizing, of, of actually making it real to me by eating, consuming, taking, taking, uh, taking it in. <clears throat> Here's a second uh, point about food that I've noticed in my own life. Probably you have noticed a similar thing. <clears throat> as much as we, as I love food, enjoy food, enjoy preparing, looking at it, growing it, and all the rest, there are plenty of times in my life where you couldn't, you couldn't, tempt me to open my mouth and take in some food because I'm not hungry. And when I'm not hungry, because I'm already satiated, I'm already filled, it doesn't matter how much I love what it is that you're offering. I'll just say, looks great, but I'm full, not interested. So what is it that gets us interested in food? Well, it seems to me it's simply hunger. It's not that we enjoy looking at it and therefore we eat it. We eat it because we, our, our body senses this need. And we say, 
I, at this, I, whether it looks great or not, I'm going to eat it if I find it because I'm hungry. My body needs the nourishment of food. Well, this is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, that's a good spot to be in. It's a good place to be in, to have a hunger, not for physical food, but he's using hunger for physical food as an illustration of this realization of our need for God. And he says, when you're humble enough that you say, oh, Lord, come and help me. Lord, guide my life. Lord, show me the way. Lord, help me meet this need. That's a good place to be in. Blessed are people who are like that. When you say, I'm full up to here, God, you can bring God to me right on a platter in front of me and I have no interest in it. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to think about God. I don't want to worship. I don't want to sing to God. I just have no hunger for God. Then Jesus is saying, you're not in a good place. You're in a poor and miserable place rather than a blessed place. Here's a, a, a place Jesus used a different analogy. He did not use food, but I'm plugging food in to this analogy because I think it's exactly the same point. Um, he, he said to uh, the, the disciple Matthew, this is recorded in chapter 9, look, healthy people don't go to the doctor because they don't need the doctor because they're not sick. I'm simply unplugging those words and throwing in the food words. And so you could say, full people don't sit down and eat food because they're already filled with food. Who needs food? It is the hungry. It is those who have um, a, a realization that what it is that Jesus brings to me, I, I need that. I'm flat out interested in that. I have no problem admitting uh, I have no problem humbling myself and saying, Lord Jesus, I need your salvation. I want to go to heaven. I, I, I'm hopeless of accomplishing these things on my own. So please come and feed me. Give to me eternal life because I'm not confident at all that I have anything, any way of my own. This is, the, this is the, what it is that draws us to God, our lack of confidence in ourselves, our realization of life and confidence in him. That's the hunger that he that comes. This might seem a little bizarre, but in thinking through the food analogy, there's also the realization that if food are, is to benefit me, there is a process that it has to go through so that my body actually appropriates the nutrients and the minerals and the food value that's in what I eat. And so it is, and so it is with this, this food, this spiritual food that God offers to us. There are many places in the Bible that kind of draw an analogy between what's going on inside of us when silently and relentlessly our body is digesting its food. And it says in your inner, here's just one place that I, that I picked, in your inner being. You don't think of this, you don't think of God as something external that you make a pilgrimage to bow down to a statue and visit. This is, this is something in your hearts. He dwells in your hearts. And so whether you're waking or sleeping, it says, it says in Psalm 16, even at night my heart instructs me or my heart counsels me. Even at night the Lord comes and, and advises me and, and, and keeps me on the path. So whether it's day or night... All the while, inside, under the surface, the food that God offers me 
is being appropriated. And I am doing things in my life to uh, address that process and to, uh, to make that process successful. Here's another uh, thought or analogy about food. And this seems so basic that we probably don't even, even give it a, a much thought at all. But it's, it's true. And it is part of the truth that certainly transfers from the physical to the spiritual. I can't eat for you. I may try sometimes. I'm eating enough for two or three people. But in the end, we all, each of us personally, can only eat for our own self. It's just how our, it's just how our physical universe works. It's just how things are in this life. You cannot consume my lunch for me. I mean, you can eat something off my plate, but which my wife does all the time. But much to my chagrin, because I'll ask her first, do you want any? No. Uh -uh. But as soon as I get it and start to eat it, anyway, this is all part of the love of married life, right? It's all part of the joy, uh, especially true popcorn. Uh, I'll ask her before I make it. And I uh, know, though, she doesn't want any until she smells it and sees it, and then suddenly, you know. But um, this is all part of the joy of married life. But we cannot eat on behalf of each other. Just cannot be done. So when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is part of his point. It's not just the eating, it's the you part. That we, we cannot pass food around or we cannot you know on behalf of each other we cannot get saved we cannot believe we cannot receive Christ on behalf of each other boy I wish we could it would be so wonderful if somehow the burdens that we have could, for people could translate to an actual some, somehow substitution there's probably none of us here that wouldn't give every dime we own if somehow or other it would enable us to save people and take them to heaven with us and know that they will have eternal life, eternal fellowship, eternal joy with us and with the Lord. But here it says, for example, nobody can do this for each other. We cannot, uh, we cannot eat the, the body and drink the blood of Christ for somebody else. We have to, each of us personally, we, we can, we're not able to do this by proxy. One more, just this one. It's amazing, and it's a wonderful thing, that when we have eaten, there is a, a satiation, there is a sense of change in our body. It's not pleasant to feel hungry. We always say how, you know, I feel like... It, my stomach's gnawing me, gnawing up, wrapping around my backbone. We have all kinds of expressions. It's not a pleasant feeling to be hungry. But it is a very pleasant feeling to be full. To feel as if somehow, ah, oh, we pat our belly, we, you know, we sit back in our chair. We, we just exhibit physically the characteristics of being so much more content so much more happy now that we've eaten because there's this sense of fullness. And I'm simply saying, translate that spiritually to 
perhaps the word fulfillment would be a, 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 a good word rather than spiritually full. I feel spiritually fulfilled. I, I know that I have locked on to something that is satisfying. Um, I came to Christ, I received Christ, ex, ex, understood and accepted Christ when I was five years old. And I remember it, and I remember where I was, and I remember the, the feeling, the emotional feeling. And that's not what my life is based on. But I remember very well the reality of understanding that I, I had found something real. And I knew that the whole rest of my life it would never change, and it never has. I was filled. Man shall not live by bread alone, but live from, be filled with every word that comes from the Lord. Here's, uh, here's something that Jesus said to the lady at the well. He's, he's not talking about water, but he uses the term water just like he uses the term blood in the passage that Josh read for us. If you, if you drink this, you'll never thirst. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't talking about the physical side of things. But we all know how good it feels to drink and not be thirsty anymore. And he says, that longing, if you, if you, if you embrace me and you, and you come to me, that longing of feeling like there's just something I'm missing out on, there's something I need, I'm so restless, I don't understand why I'm never happy, I'm never satisfied, I'm always, always searching and never feel like I ever... That will come to an end if you embrace me, if you, if you trust me. That will come to an end. You'll never, you'll never have that. Here's a verse I mentioned earlier from Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied. This we understand because we eat, we drink, and we say, tasted good, it was great, I don't eat anymore, no thanks. Even if the plate comes around, even, you know, even if it's something that we really like, we reach a point where we say, I, will, I can't touch it anymore, I'm full. And, and we, we, we just need to, to realize that these are the kind of things that Jesus is implying when he says, you need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood. That he's, he's referring to the kind of realities that physical food brings to our physical bodies and using that as a metaphor. This, the scripture makes it pretty clear, and we know from our life experience, that we can have access to food. We can see food or understand that it's there available and not do anything about it. And that's what Jesus is addressing. You know, occasionally people go on starvation diets or people go on um, fasts or some kind of um, a protest is happening and somebody uh, practically starves himself to death because they're trying to make a point and get attention and all this. And Jesus said, listen, you have to eat it. This, this, is, the, this is the point that he's, that he's making. Uh, seeing it or knowing it or understanding it is simply not uh, going to get you saved. It's not going to do the trick. Knowing about Christ, hearing about Christ, reading about Christ, and never receiving Christ is still going to leave you as empty as if you hadn't eaten. It's not knowing about 
that's the point of saying, you know, you have to eat it. Look at this verse. This was a parable Jesus was telling about a servant who was rebellious against his master. His master was away, and he said, I want you to run things. And servant knew exactly well what his master wanted, but he thought, oh, he's away. I'll just fritter, and I'll do something different. And, and he came home, and the servant hadn't done what he was supposed to do, even though he knew what he was supposed to do. And Jesus said, what do you think that master's going to do? He's going to grab that servant, and he's going to beat him. Now, I'm not advocating beating anybody, and I don't think Jesus was either. He was simply describing the realization that when someone knows what to do and they don't do it, the persons who are responsible to get it done are not pleased. They're not happy. And he says, why is God going to be happy or receive you or have a soft spot in his heart for you when you know that you have to eat this, but you don't eat it? If you know but you do not do, then this is, this is not good news. Okay, let me mention part of this question. I will move here as fast as I can. Part of this question said, why do so many people believe in this sense of the real presence or what is called in the Catholic Church transubstantiation, meaning uh, a belief that the uh, elements, the physical bread and the cup, uh, the wine, the juice, the, they, they actually change substance, transubstantiation, transubstance, substance transfers, makes a transfer into a different kind of substance. And so the cornerstone teaching of the Catholic Church is that this doctrine that these physical elements transubstantiate, they change and actually become, uh, become the, the body of Christ in some sort of a physical, uh, in some sort of a physical and, and mystical way. Um, here is a statement that actually is from uh, a, a writing called Fundamentals Catholic Dogma. Um, the body and blood of Christ together with his soul and divinity and therefore the whole Christ are truly present in the Eucharist. The physical elements change substance to become flesh and blood. It's not symbolic, but it's actual. Um, we, of course, who are Protestant, do not agree with this. I personally do not agree with that. It's not my theology. It's part of one of the issues that the Protestant church was born out of. It's kind of a of an understanding that this was, was an error that had crept in. Um, Jesus is not... I, 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 I want to make this point, and I don't know how much more I'll get to say about this except that we feel that this whole thing is a metaphor and that's what I was trying to explain earlier Jesus was not making these statements literally that you have to almost in some cannibalistic sounding way drink his blood we cannot even do that we drink juice but uh, this, is, this is a metaphor he was talking about about being saved about trusting him and it's not even about communion itself, although it's often referred to in this light. I myself have referred to this passage often. 
when on, on days of communion. Many times I've read from John 6, but I think probably maybe a little bit falsely conveyed an image that Jesus was talking about communion when he says, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was not talking about what we're doing here. He was talking about receiving his substitution, his salvation. His blood is his death. And we have to accept it. We have to acknowledge it. We have to, we, we, we cannot toss it away. We have to eat it. We have to drink it. We have to um, internalize it for ourselves. The metaphor Christ used was shocking to the Jews because they were taking it literally. If you look in one of the verses Josh read, it says they got in an argument and they said, how can we eat his flesh? What is he talking about? Um, they, they were taking this literally. And then instead of explaining it or soft-pedaling it or backing off, Jesus said, well, I'm going to add fuel to the fire. You have to drink my blood too. Now, you know, you read the Old Testament, book of Leviticus, one of the places, chapter 17. I mean, it's horrific what the Lord says. If you drink blood, if you, if you don't even, if, even if you go out hunting and you take an animal and you don't drain the blood from that carcass and you just somehow like a wild person eat bloody meat and don't even uh, attempt to acknowledge blood, the Lord said, I'm going to cut you off from my people. I, you are not to drink blood. You are not to consume carcasses that have not been drained of blood. The blood is highly symbolic to me. This is very strong dogma in the Jewish understanding. So to have Christ sit there and say, oh, you got to drink my blood as well, surely was shocking to them. But it seems to me that, that the point that he's laying upon them is to say, I'm not talking about actual blood. You understand that from all of your history and God's laws to you, that hasn't changed. God still honors and understands blood. Man shedding man's blood is unacceptable. None of that has changed. So I'm standing here saying, drink my blood, but I'm not talking about that. I am referring to rather um, not, not this juice or this bread. I'm referring to the whole action, the whole idea, the whole reality of my death. It is a metaphor of my, of my sacrifice. And this is an only a metaphoric way of saying, you have to accept what I am doing for you. Um, real quickly, here's some other thoughts about why he's not talking about what we're doing here this morning when he says, I have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. One thing, there was no, this was very early in his ministry in John 6. If he was talking about the last supper that he instituted later to his disciples, nobody would have even understood what he was talking about. What could he have been referring to? He didn't say, well, um, I, I will come back to this topic later. I'll explain it. He just simply said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, and, and, and yet, this was a much earlier time in his ministry. Here's another thing that, to me, is a big clue. All the passages in the New Testament, in the Synoptic Gospels, in the book of um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, all those passages about communion, Therefore, I pass on to you what I have received from Christ that on the, on, on the evening of the Last Supper he took. All of those passages, every single one, use the word body. This is my body. This is a conversation. Jesus uses the word flesh. It's a very different word. It's not the same actual topic that he's talking about. When he says, anyway, 
One more thing. This is very important. He says, if you, have to, if, if you eat my flesh, you have eternal life. If he's talking about this, then all we have to do to have eternal life is just come and have some bread. And we'll, we'll be assured of our eternal life. We all know and understand that the scripture says that that is not how we're saved. We are not saved by taking communion. In fact, it's very purposeful to say we need to make sure we are already saved before we take communion. Otherwise, it's kind of mocking God and the importance of it. So the whole thing, this whole conversation is about internalizing, embracing, receiving, trusting. It's about salvation. Now, I'm not precluding communion. I'm not saying that it doesn't have anything to do with it. It does. But this is not simply a conversation about what we're doing here this morning. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is about all that Jesus came to do. And he's saying, this is the only choice. This is the food God has laid on the table. And you have to eat it. Including the symbolism of what we do now. Heaven.